Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we hear an Atlanta couple's journey through the adoption process during this COVID-19 pandemic. I think actually the pandemic helped prepare me for motherhood a little bit in that I had to spend a month in isolation before we got ISA. So I was used to just staying home all the time, focusing on family. So this has just been a bright light in this whole situation for sure. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is offering the state as a contender to host the Republican National Convention. A morning tweet from the governor reads, quote, With world-class facilities, restaurants, hotels, and workforce, Georgia would be honored to safely host the Republican National Convention. We hope you consider the peach state. The governor then tagged President Donald Trump. Now, why would Governor Kemp do this? Well, prior to the pandemic, the convention was scheduled to take place in Charlotte, North Carolina, from August 24th to the 27th. However, this weekend, President Trump threatened to relocate the convention in a series of tweets posted on Memorial Day. In those tweets, the president criticized North Carolina Democratic Governor Roy Cooper for being in a, quote, shutdown mood. Governor Cooper, in response, issued the following via Twitter, quote, state health officials are working with the RNC and will review its plan as they make decisions about how to hold the convention in Charlotte. North Carolina is relying on data and science to protect our state's public health and safety, close quote. Meanwhile, back here in Georgia, as of 9 a.m. today, there are 43,586 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,853, and there are 7,511 hospitalized. Now, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health as of 9 a.m. today. Closer Look returns in just a moment. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Atlanta-based nonprofit Families First has been serving families for more than 130 years. And based on the sound that you just heard, you can imagine what we're about to talk about. Located on Atlanta's west side, the organization provides a lot of services and resources, including support for youth in foster care, family counseling, pregnancy and early parenting, as well as adoption services. However, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, there were some challenges for adoptive parents and birth parents. And now you're going to hear a story. I'm joined now by Kelly Balkarzak and Sanjay Saragopan, recently navigated this process with the help of Families First. And I'm also joined by Diane Hood, the International and Domestic Adoption Programs Coordinator. Thank you all, including the littlest person on the other end of this microphone. Thank you all for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Sanjay and Kelly, will you 
introduce the other member of this conversation? Yeah, sure. This is um, Isabel Karzak. He just turned one month. And so we've been living together as a family for about a month now. So you know all about parenting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've been learning on the fly. We haven't had our parents here to help us out and teach us the ropes. So uh, after a month, what's been the biggest takeaway? Just be ready to wake up at any time and... uh... (laughs) Take care of them. Yeah, every time you think he's becoming predictable, he becomes unpredictable again. So, but it's definitely worth it. Let's let's go back a little bit, Kelly and Sanjay. When did y'all make the decision that you wanted to adopt? We probably were talking about it maybe three years ago or so. Um, and then we kind of initiated the process uh, a couple of years ago. Did you talk to other Folks who had adopted little ones, did you look for feedback? What was that process like? Yeah, yeah. We talked with uh, a couple of friends of ours who have adopted. Uh, We were put in touch with other um, adopting families, uh, uh, even in the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. and uh, spoke with them as well. What did they tell you? All good things. They all had really great experiences, and, uh, you know, they just uh, told us be ready for a wait um, because depending on kind of um, what you're looking for, et cetera, um, it, it may take a while. And, uh, you know, luckily uh, we, we got Isa um, sooner than I think we, we expected or thought. So it's great. I'm going to say I work um, in the federal government and there's a lot of female professionals that try to advance in their career a little bit before having a child. So it's surprising. <laughs> The number of um, moms within the federal government that are adoptive moms. Um, We had 20 people at our baby shower and six of 20 of those folks had an adoption story. And did you all decide that it was going to be an international adoption? Uh, Yeah, we decided on domestic uh, because we uh, figured that there were still plenty of uh, families uh, in, in those similar situations here. And that's why we... Diane, let me bring you into the conversation. When couples come to you or an individual comes to you and they say, you know what, I'm thinking about adopting or I want to adopt, what are those initial conversations like? Well, the first thing that we have to navigate with a family is the type of adoption that they're seeking. At Families First, we can do, um, um, we can help families who wish to adopt kids who are in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. We can work with families who wish to adopt a child from another country an international adoption, or like Kelly and Sanjay, who feel strongly that they want to adopt um, a newborn baby, and then we can get them into our um, infant adoption program. So the first step is to figure out the type of adoption and then help them lay out the next steps, the, the plan to, to achieve their goal of adoption. What questions or what do you all stress for folks who are interested in adopting What do you want them to know about this, not only the process, but about becoming a parent if they have not been a parent? So every adoption begins with a home study, which um, we tell our families is a process of evaluation and education. So families have to be prepared for the evaluation part of it. We do, you know, criminal background checks and medical reports and stuff like that. You know, we get very um, deep into Mm -hmm. our clients' lives, but there's a there's a purpose for that. And there's also a a goal in that. We want to prepare our families 
to be the best parents that they can be. Um, there's a lot of education that goes into it. Raising a child by adoption mm -hmm. um, involves some different issues than raising a child by birth, whether you're taking a child with a background of trauma or you're adopting a child from another country. We really want to um, come alongside our families and prepare them well, give them lots of, of tools and strategies and resources to be very well prepared to parent the type of child that they're adopting. And Diane, is the process usually longer if folks are wanting to adopt an infant as opposed to a, an older child? It can be longer with an infant. So much depends on uh, being chosen by the expectant mom because she does get to choose the family for her baby. And some families get chosen early on in the process and some have to wait longer. Mm -hmm. um, we generally tell our families to expect one to two years is a good time frame for um, an infant adoption. And if they're seeking to adopt kids who are in state foster care, um, usually around a year for that process. I want to bring back Kelly and Sanjay for a moment. When you all learned that it could take a year or two, were you obviously you all were okay with that length of time? Yeah, yeah, we we were aware of the possibility of waiting that long, and yeah, we decided that we were uh, ready for that. So, Diane, COVID-19 hits, there's this pandemic. What challenges has this pandemic brought for you all in terms of folks who were might might have been in the process of adopting or who were just starting an adoption process? Yeah. So for our families who are seeking to adopt, we've had to kind of change up the way we do the home study procedure. Uh, we're doing interviews by Zoom. Um, there does still have to be a component of in-person in the home. And so sometimes we've had to delay some of that. Um, it's also changed the way I'm working with expectant moms because um, Usually my, my main method of working with these women is to sit down face to face with them mm -hmm. um, at the office or at a restaurant, you know, and really be able to um, build that rapport and, and get to know them well. And, you know, the past couple of weeks, we haven't been able to do those sort of face to face visits. So I've had to rely on um, video and, and telephone calls. Um, it's also changed our protocol at the hospital, as Kelly and Sanjay found out with this placement. We've had to, to uh, change up and, and work out new details on how to do discharge and placement. Can you take our listeners through that, what those changes were? At the hospital and placement, do mm -hmm. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So um, normally the adoptive parents um, would be there, would be present at the hospital. Um, many of our birth mothers like to have the family there at the hospital um, as soon as possible after birth. And um, in this particular case, Kelly and Sanjay were not allowed to be in the hospital at all. Mm. Um, in fact, the hospital was not thrilled about allowing me and the attorney in at the same time because uh, they had a, a one visitor policy. We had to get special permission for both of us to go into the room with the birth mother at the time. Um, and then, you know, of course, being all masked up. Um, I have a, a great picture of I'm holding the baby and I've got a mask on and the baby's got this look on his face. Issa's looking at me like, what on earth is wrong with this <laughs> woman? Why does she look like this? Um, and so it was, uh, you know, just just navigating. It just, it just felt off. It just felt awkward. 
Um, the, uh, because the hospital would not allow the adoptive parents in, the birth mother and I had to carry the baby out of the hospital ourselves. And then I met Kelly and Sanjay um, in the parking lot in a drizzly cold rain to, um, to, to do the placement of the baby with them. Um, normally they would have been in the nursery hearing all the, the discharge instructions for the baby you know, being able to dress the baby themselves and put the baby in the car seat themselves. And we just couldn't do any of that in this situation. And Diane, that happened maybe a few hours after little baby Issei was born? No, it happened um, two days after okay. the baby was born. So most hospitals keep babies for 48 hours. Okay. Kelly and Sanjay, can you describe for our listeners the first time you held little baby Issa? Yeah, uh, it was... Pretty uh, amazing experience, uh, you know. We we were hopeful, we were waiting, and we still weren't sure uh, it was going to happen until it actually did. And just uh, you know, having having that moment is something I'll I'll treasure always. Kelly, what about you? I would say the same thing, and every time I talk about it, I I get a little emotional, but it was just obviously a life-changing experience that we'll never forget. And like Sanjay said, we, we weren't even sure it was going to happen until the moment we held him in our arms. So it was, it was a pretty special moment that um, changed our lives forever. Kelly, let me stay with you and you can take as much time as you need. You weren't sure it was going to happen. Why? Well, because um, the birth mother has the opportunity to change her mind. Mm -hmm. um, we know it's a process and a very difficult decision. So um, she has a lot on her mind as these days are, are passing. So we weren't sure if she um, would be comfortable moving forward with adoption or if she'd want to mother Issa herself. So um, it was just a, a waiting and a hoping and um, Luckily for us, we, we were blessed with little baby Issa. Diane, have you all been able to complete the adoption process throughout this pandemic? We know the story of Kelly here and Sanjay, but have you had other adoptions that were completed during this pandemic? Um, not babies being born. I have some expectant moms that I'm working with, um, like I said, remotely now. Mm -hmm. Well, Diane, when would y'all make a decision to return to your normal practice in terms of the adoption process? Who makes that decision? Will you all follow other guidelines from the state? or? I think the decision will come from our CEO, and I think he's being very cautious to be mindful of CDC recommendations and state recommendations um, so that uh, you know our staff is protected and also we're protecting the people that we come into contact with. So. I'm, I'm not sure when we'll go back to quote-unquote normal, whatever that looks like. And Diane, before we end this conversation, we've been hearing reports of the plight of some kids in foster care. Have you all had an increase in youth needing foster care? Yeah, we do get calls from um, families who are seeking to become foster parents because they know that there's a need. And we do have a department at Families First that um, prepares those parents for foster care. Our agency does have a partnership with DFACS where we can provide foster parents and then adoptive parents for kids who are coming into state custody. When you think about 
that there could be a greater need for foster parents during this time, during a pandemic? What goes through your mind? I think about the kids who may be in unstable living situations and how much more stress this pandemic has added to homes that may already be unstable or unhealthy. And I know that um, DFACS has a big job Mm -hmm. to monitor these homes and make sure that they're safe. And um, I worry about kids not having another outlet to go to like school or daycare programs. And so um, Child Protective Services has a huge job to um, get these kids out. But once they get these kids out, they need a place for these kids to go. And so there's such a need for um, foster families who are trained and ready to take these kids in when they can't live with their um, original families anymore. Mm. Kelly and Sanjay, it's only been a month, but is it everything that you thought it would be? (laughs) It's definitely everything we thought it would be and more. And I think different than we thought it would be given um, Mm COVID-19. You always expect your family and friends surrounding you and helping you. And they have been virtually, but it's a little (laughs) bit different. So um, I think think actually the pandemic helped prepare me for motherhood a little bit in that Mm -hmm. I had to spend a month in isolation before we got ISA. So I was used to just staying home all the time and (laughs) Uh, focusing on family. So um, this has just been uh, kind of a, a bright light in, in this whole situation for sure. Now, when will you all make the decision to maybe let uh, family and friends meet little baby Issa? Yeah, it, it will depend. Uh, my family lives in New York, so the restrictions are a little bit tighter there. And mm-hmm. most of my family are essential employees, firemen and nurses. So um, they're exposed. We, mm. we might wait a little bit longer for those. Sanjay's family lives in North Carolina, so we might hopefully soon be able to meet his side of the family. Finally, what is your, just your message to anyone out there who is thinking about adopting or might just be getting into the process? What do you want them to know about your experience? I would say that it, Um, to be patient and just be mindful of yourself and if you're adopting with a partner what they're going through during the the time when you're waiting Um, and definitely reach out to folks that have gone through the process before there's so many people that have had this experience and are willing to share and support and and give guidance throughout the process so I recommend this to anybody who's who's thinking of starting a family it's just the bond is immediate it's it doesn't feel um, like somebody else's child. It feels like your own as soon as you um, hold them in your arms. So mm-hmm. it's it's definitely a, the perfect option for us, and we're glad that we did it. Kelly, Sanjay, Diane Hood, International Domestic Adoption Program Coordinator for Families First. Thank you all for taking the time. Kelly and Sanjay, thank you for sharing your story with us. And congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Now, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, Atlanta, like many other cities, was dealing with a housing affordability crisis. And this is now amplified due to millions of folks who have lost employment. Although now there are moratoriums on evictions, that hasn't stopped some attempts by landlords and property management companies from notifying residents they will be evicted. Open Doors, an Atlanta-based nonprofit, is trying to help. And joining me now to talk more about this is Matt Hurd. Matt is the executive director for Open Doors. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show, Rose. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about our work. For our listeners who may not be familiar with Open Doors, uh, what's the origin story here? How long have you all been around? We've been around for about seven years. We were actually started by executives and principals in the real estate community who were really looking to make a difference to take a lot of the vacancies that they had at the time that were affordable and make it easier for other nonprofits in the metro Atlanta area to identify those vacant units and get their clients, individuals and families who were exiting homelessness into them as quickly as possible. You know, we've been really successful over the last seven years. We've placed a little over 7,300 individuals and families, and it's been a great experience to see what can happen with the collaboration between the nonprofit community and the real estate community. So how does Open Doors assure whether they're property management companies or landlords, how do you assure them on the potential for the tenant to be able to meet the rent? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, right now we actually partner with a little over 270 multifamily apartment communities uh, represented by over 70 management companies. And we we enter into a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And basically, in exchange for listing their units for free, we provide them with qualified, strong individuals and families who have the support of nonprofit agencies, providing them a, a rental subsidy. Typically, most of our placed households have short-term subsidies anywhere from three to six months. And so they come with that financial backing. They come with the support of really strong case managers. We have great nonprofit partners, over 80 now within Metro Atlanta. And so with that exchange, we, we really act as a broker between those groups who are moving people out of homelessness and the, the owners, the property managers who have those vacancies. So Open Door serves almost like a you, you mentioned broker. Mm-hmm. Some may call it a middle person in a sense. Exactly. Yeah, we, we market ourselves as almost a match.com of the nonprofit rental community world where we use technology that we've created with a few of our partners to be able to list and to manage those vacancies and to be able to do it in a really fast manner. And so so we put the technology in the hands of the case managers to Mm -hmm. be able to know when those vacant units hit the market, what price points they're working at, and what subsidies they'll accept. And so it's really taking the guesswork out of navigating the real estate community. You know, when I was, I started out as a case manager 
many years ago, and I had to work with my my consumers in the community, you know, looking at Craigslist and and calling up apartment communities and paying rental fees, and we've really taken all the guesswork out of that for them now. Matt, the folks that you all are helping, uh, you mentioned low-income families, but also understand veterans as well. Correct, yeah. It's, you know, we've been really blessed to partner with some amazing nonprofit organizations in Metro Atlanta that their main focuses are trying to make veteran homelessness and homelessness in general just brief and rare and non-recurring. And so, you know, we've been able to help really over three or four years end homelessness for around a thousand veterans. And so it's only through the support of our, our partners, our property partners, nonprofit partners that we're able to make this work happen. Matt, have you all seen an increase in the number of people who need help during this pandemic? Definitely. And that's, we've created a special program called RentBridge in mm-hmm. response to the pandemic. RentBridge is really designed to help any of our households placed to be able to have a safety net. And so, you know, what we're looking at is comparing to national averages and averages in the metro area, anywhere from 20 to 30% of households living in rental communities are going to struggle with paying rent. And so we've raised funds to be able to help them at first with April and May's rent. And we're hoping that we can continue to raise funds to help hundreds of households stay housed. You know, most of the the folks that we work with don't have the ability to work from home. They're having to stay home with kids because daycares are closed. Mm-hmm. And a lot have uh, experienced furloughed work status or been laid off. And so we want to make sure that all of those families that we've helped and individuals that we've helped don't return to homelessness because of the COVID crisis. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Matt Hurd. Matt is the executive director for Open Doors. And our discussion today is about the organization's Rent Bridge program, which is helping residents stay in their homes during this pandemic. Matt, I understand that you all received dozens of applications from households seeking financial assistance. How do people apply? So we've reached out to our partners on the property side and on the nonprofit side and shared with them information about getting access. And so anyone who is interested in applying or learning more can go to our website and be able to make application there. And what we'll do is take a look at their criteria. So looking at, you know, where did they experience that reduction in, in hours or employment income? Mm-hmm. And we'll take a look at, you know, if they were a open doors placement, we want to make it as easy as possible for them to get approved and get approved quickly. And so we're seeing about a one week turnaround from when we get an application to when we disperse funds. We're also really excited to work with the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Partner Association who just recently endorsed us, the Atlanta Housing Authority and and another nonprofit called Partners for Home in looking at finding 200 to 300 rental units in the metro area for folks who are being temporarily sheltered in hotels because of the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, you you can't shelter in place if you don't have a place. And so what we're trying to do is partner with all those groups to to locate 200 to 300 vacant units to be able to move those individuals and families into an apartment so that they don't have to go back to homelessness after that shelter period is over. Matt, how challenging is it to find those units in a city like Atlanta where you know we've been covering this for years now when we keep hearing, well, the number of what would be considered affordable units for those who are seeking affordable housing, there's just not enough out there. How do you all find these places? 
That's a great question, and, and we find them in scale. And so the more management companies, owners we work with, the more units we can list in our app and make available to our nonprofit partners. And so, you know, it's a challenging environment. You know, rents have increased and vacancies have decreased. But again, we have we have an amazing partner with the Atlanta Partner Association. We have over 70 management companies who really want to be a part of the solution. And so, you know, the more companies that we can work with and bring into the fold, the more we can list those vacant units and get them into the hands of the case managers who are really trying to find them for their consumers. Matt, what has been your reflection as this pandemic has amplified sort of the inequities that already existed before this pandemic, especially because of housing issues in a city like Atlanta? What's been the takeaway for you? Yeah, I think the the strongest marker for me during this time has been how really the public community and the private community industry business has come together to really create some unique solutions. And you know, at the heart of what Open Doors does, you know, that's why we're successful is that we've got these great real estate partners, we've got these wonderful technology partners and just amazing nonprofit partners who do just the heavy lifting into being able to address, you know, those inequalities and dealing with folks who desperately need affordable housing. And so I, I've been really impressed with how the community has come together to come up with thinking outside of the box and, and coming up with just new strategies, especially as we're all having to deal with being sheltered. And I think we can really continue that momentum to take a look at not only the issue of affordable housing development, but also within that existing inventory that is there, how do we how do we collaborate and how do we work together to make sure that the people who are most in need are getting access to those units? And then Matt, what about when we get to the other side of this, whenever that's going to happen? Because many experts and housing advocates worry that the crisis before the pandemic as it relates to affordable housing here in the Atlanta area will be 10 times worse once we get to no, the other a, side of this? No, that's a great question. And what's been interesting is I've, I've consulted really all across the country on helping communities replicate the success that Open Doors has experienced. And I think the, the key factor that Atlanta has really embraced is, you know, like I said before, is, you know, all of the players coming together willingly and saying, okay, what can we all do collectively to be a part of the solution? And so regardless of if, if the numbers increase, which they probably will, the solution is still going to be the same, which is everyone has a stake in investing into the community and, and being part of the solution. And so, like I said, our, our property partners, real estate partners come to us with equal dose of investment in trying to make Atlanta a better community, but also do it in a way that makes great business sense for their investors. And, you know, we see that just that collaboration yields great, great results. Matt Hurd, Executive Director for Open Doors. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you and your organization, what you all are doing for the community. I'm sure a lot of folks appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. Stay well. You too. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. 2020, the year there was no Final Four champion, NBA champion, so far no Grand Slam tennis champs. Sports, like pretty much everything else, came to a halt. Well, as states ease regulations regarding businesses and some event happenings, 
NASCAR is ready to roll. Coming up on tomorrow's Closer Look, a conversation with Brandon Hutchinson. Who's he? Well, he's the executive vice president and general manager of Atlanta Motor Speedway, which will host a race next month. But it will be unlike any race ever hosted at the Speedway in its 60 years. We're not thrilled about having a race with with no fans in the stands, but we are thrilled about the opportunity that has been presented to us to be an industry that is the first to bring live sports back to our country and back to countries across the the globe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very big responsibility on on a safety front, and we're trying to be as smart as we possibly can along those lines. But as you know, sporting events, live sporting events have have been the thread that has brought our country closer together, has bound us together coming out of adversity, whether it's a war Mm -hmm. most recently, you know, Mm 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, some of the first things that gave us an opportunity to press pause on all of the things not going right in our world and be able to kick back, sit around with your family and enjoy live sports. It just gives you a, a little bit of time to not have to worry about what's going on around mm-hmm. you. So while, again, we don't want to ever have to put on events without fans in our stands, we are very honored to be able to bring some sense of relief, some sense of normalcy in live sporting events to people across the world. Mm-hmm. Let's talk dollars and cents for a second, Brandon. Will you all make any money? You know, um, we will, you know, there are television contracts in mm-hmm. place, so we will see some revenue from that. And, you know, we have sold a bunch of tickets to the previous scheduled March 13th through the 15th race. So we have approached our fans and given them the opportunity to receive 120% credit for all of those tickets. Okay. So we will be able to retain some of that revenue. But right now, I think that uh, the jury's still out just on how much money will be made. It won't be the same as it would be for a normal NASCAR event. I can promise you that. And listen, how do you keep away those fans who say, oh, we're just going to hang out outside the track and maybe see Harvick or something like that? <laughs> you know, How do you keep them away, man? It's going to be a very interesting process. We sit on 850 acres, mm-hmm. so there are a lot of a lot of ways to access the facility. Unfortunately, again, we're, we're going to have to restrict access to the entire property. You know, we want to do everything within our power to keep the community safe and to be able to keep the competitors and the essential workers safe so that we can effectively put on this event. So we will we will be blocking the entrances. We'll have local law enforcement on hand as well, not to harass people, not to give people a hard time. That's sure. the last thing we would ever want to do, but just to make sure that that the perimeter of the facility is, is kept free of fans coming onto the property. Wow. A NASCAR race without fans in the Atlanta Motor Speedway grandstands? That conversation tomorrow on Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
You may notice there's something different in a lot of the advertisements we've been hearing and seeing of late. Yes, there's still the nudge to sell a product or service, but there's also been this wave of marketing and advertising campaigns praising and honoring those working on what we call the front lines of this COVID-19 pandemic. And then there's also something new from Emory Healthcare. Take a listen. The biggest worry I have is it can be anyone. It can be any one of us. This disease does not discriminate. When we're seeing these patients, you know, one second, they could be the most stable patient. We're thinking we're going to get them home in the next day. But the acute change of events is the most scary things that are happening with these patients. I've had patients who are 35-year-old former nurses, have COVID, very severe respiratory symptoms, all the way up to age 92. I had a 92-year-old last week or two weeks ago that actually got discharged from the hospital after beating COVID. But the reality is we're all still learning, navigating, and reacting to this disease process. That's the voice of Dr. Duval Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital. You'll hear from him in just a moment. And I'm also joined by Amy Como, Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Support at Emory Healthcare. And we're going to learn a lot more about this new series. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Dr. Desai, let me start with you. In all your years, I know you've been in medicine. Have you ever experienced anything like this with this COVID-19 pandemic? And what do you make of it? You know, Rose, this is the first time that I've experienced such a pandemic. In training, we really have never been trained on pandemics as well, and we never really faced this. This is the first time I've dealt with this, and hopefully it will be the last time. It may not. It has completely changed our day-to-day operations and our day-to-day vision of how we are reacting and treating patients, and it has been a huge learning curve and opportunity for all of us. Let me stay with you for a moment. Take our listeners through a typical day and how that has changed for you now as opposed to before all of this happened. So, sure. As a hospitalist, we're trained to treat acute conditions, patients who are admitted to the hospital with an acute condition, an acute change of their chronic condition, some type of new process. They're admitted to the hospital and cannot be managed at home. We are well trained to treat these situations and over time we get very accustomed to treating these situations, treating these clinical conditions, collaborating with other physicians. With the COVID pandemic, this has completely changed our day-to-day operations. So being hospitalists, we like to keep the patients at the center of our focus and that certainly has not changed. You know, from a day-to-day standpoint, when I walk into the hospital, historically, I really take value in the patient and family-centered care approach to care. We rely on our family members and our patients to be there together advocating for themselves. And first and foremost, we don't have that at the current time in the hospital since we're so strict with visitations to avoid any further exposures in the hospital. Mm -hmm. That in itself is is a separate issue that we're dealing with right now and navigating. And obviously day to day as we're working through COVID patients, we do have COVID patients who are isolated on certain units and we've established protocols for appropriate sanitation, appropriate protective gear for those units for our healthcare providers, all of which we did not have before. So we really restructured how we operate day to day and see these patients to keep ourselves and the patients as safe, safely cared for as possible. Dr. Dusag, have you lost patients due to this? You know, I don't comment specifically on patients on my from my standpoint at this standpoint in terms of what I've cared for. What I can tell you is that I've seen such a wide variety 
of patients who are been affected by this in all age groups. And I've seen patients who have little to no comorbidities or chronic disease conditions be affected to those who have several chronic conditions also been affected. Some have done well and some have struggled. Has this taken a toll on you mentally? Thank you. Yeah. So the last two months have been very stressful. I am only a fraction of the healthcare piece puzzle, and there are many people who are day-to-day involved in taking care of these patients. One thing I am concerned about is the well-being and mental health of our healthcare providers and all of our healthcare team. Currently and over the last two months, as we've navigated this crisis, we've really been in an acute mode where our adrenaline is peaking. As that adrenaline starts to wane and we establish a new normal, I really feel that we need to recognize and be aware of wellness for our healthcare providers. For me, it's been stressful. I've lost sleep at night. As the leader of my group, I want to protect my team. I'm constantly trying to communicate with them, react to changes, and make sure we're all on the same page, keeping in mind that everything is constantly evolving. So I am very concerned about overall well-being and mental health of our healthcare team. Previous to COVID, there was a lot of talk about burnout among healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. And I personally feel that that is going to only get worse as we navigate this crisis, unless we recognize and be aware that this is happening in real time right now. Amy, let me bring you to the conversation. You just heard what Dr. Desai described. Are you hearing this a lot from those on the front lines throughout the Emory healthcare system? Yeah, Rose, it's a, it's a great point and one that Dr. Desai mentions. I mean, he's he and his team are closest to it, but we we know, those of us that support on the back line, so to speak, um, the emotional toll that it's taking on all healthcare workers. Um, and so, in a way, we wanted to, this video series is a way for us to help show that to the general public, what we've been seeing and hearing about on a daily basis. So, so definitely something that you know, we're aware of and, and share the same concern as, as Dr. Desai. Is that where the idea came to launch this video series? It actually came out of, of two things, really. One was as we were talking around messaging that needed to be out there, as we knew the shelter-in-place order was coming to a close, and as many of us, ourselves included, are, are spending a, a lot more time um, in our homes, and, and it's natural for people to start to get a little stir crazy, we were worried that people would just suddenly stop following proper social distancing. Hmm. And so we thought, how can we figure out a way to help get the message out there that this virus is real and it's having a real impact on people we, you know, people we know, people in the community, as well as our healthcare providers. And so that was really the genesis for, for the series. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Amy Como, Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Support at Emory Healthcare, featuring the experiences of frontline staff during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm also joined by Dr. Duvall Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital. And it's a new video series from Emory Healthcare. Dr. Desai, let me come back to you for a moment. Um, When you were approached to share your story, what were your initial thoughts? You know, my initial thoughts were, and feeling empowered. The going through this crisis has been intense, but also empowering for our entire healthcare team. There's no other time than right now to showcase the strength of all of our healthcare workers. And I'm honestly felt very proud to represent the Emory healthcare team, specifically the team at Emory St. Joseph's who has put and continue to put so much effort and strength into this crisis. After you were able to share a story, was there a little bit of a 
cathartic feeling came over you that this was helpful and particularly in everything that we just talked about a few moments ago in terms of the the toll the physical and mental toll certainly certainly you know i think first and foremost talking about what we're going through is key we as healthcare providers and most people experiencing crisis they don't get a chance to talk about that for me using this platform on a video series to talk about it and get this message out was very powerful and then also you know related to your point you just mentioned rose about talking about it for our physicians and the well-being of our groups i have started weekly wellness sessions for our physicians to really talk about and experience that catharsis as we're going through this because at the end of the day we are all human beings and going through this is really about the human experience Amy, now we're all in a social distancing state of mind these days. So the the video does give a behind the scenes feel, but you all also had to adhere by those guidelines. Was it difficult to get some of this shot? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. In order to shoot these, we wanted to make sure that the the producer and the interviewer were also following proper social distancing. So as they went in and to the hospitals where they were shooting these, they made sure that they were, I think, at least 10 feet away um, from the interview subject, and in some cases, I think even more, making sure that they were properly masked. And, and because of that, the, the videos almost have um, an extra behind-the-scenes look to them, right? Mm-hmm. So if you watch any of them, sometimes you'll see the microphone. You'll see, you know, whether it's Dr. Desai or one of our, our nurses, as they approach and sit, the, sit down in the chair, you're capturing that. So it's not the typical interview that you normally see where you see the interviewer up close talking with the interviewee. It's not like 60 Minutes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not at all. You know, I have Mike Wallace interrogating you. No, I'm just kidding. I love Mike Wallace. He was a wonderful journalist, one of my heroes. Amy, I'm curious, were there some folks who just couldn't get, make it through a shooting that was too emotional for them to, to continue? Yeah, so we've shot a lot of these videos, and what you end up seeing it produced is a is a one to two minute video. Mm-hmm. But for some, telling their stories around either patients that they that they did lose or families that they were connected with, there's a you know there are a few have a moment where you know they need to take a pause and um, really think about collect their thoughts. Um, and in some cases, we've actually captured that, and they, those providers have been generous enough for us to actually share that those moments in, mm-hmm. in the videos because it really does bring a true face to this crisis and let people know that it is real and it and we need to be uh, continue to be concerned about it. Here's a question for both of you, and, and Dr. Desai, I'll start with you. We can't make people have a certain emotion or feeling about something like this, but what do you hope people do take away from this video series? You know, it's a great question, Rose. I do hope people take away that the importance of social distancing and continuing to flatten the curve that we talk about is very important. We want to protect our healthcare personnel. We really want to keep the hospital as open without constraints as possible and keep everybody as well as possible. And with this series, I'm hoping people recognize that health really starts at home and health being the well-being and being free from illness. It should not happen in the hospital. It needs to happen at home. So if we can all continue to evolve ourselves into this new normal that we're facing and adhere to guidelines and recommendations, I think we'd ultimately benefit everyone. And I hope that message can get out clearly with our video series. Hmm. Amy, what about you? I, I couldn't agree more. You know, every day um, our teams 
approach their work with the hope to improve lives and provide hope. And this is one way for us to be able to do that. And we want people to, to know that these are the things we, we need them to, and we all need to continue to do to make sure that we continue to flatten the curve. You know, as Dr. Desai said, it's the proper hand washing, making sure to mask when in public. There's a phrase we like to use. It's called, my mask protects you, your mask protects me. Mm-hmm. And we really do want to see that when you're in the grocery stores, that, that those are important things that we all can do to contribute to flattening the curve. And Amy, for our listeners, where can they view the videos? So the videos are available on Emory Healthcare's social media outlets. So our Facebook page, LinkedIn, Instagram, and we're also pushing them out via Twitter. They're also available on Emory Healthcare's YouTube channel. Um, And additionally, I have to share this fact. We've actually had some requests from news outlets across the country to share these. So they are being shared with over 60 different news outlets across the country from Seattle to Dallas to D.C. to even here in Atlanta. And so each one of those outlets, these videos are getting an exposure of a reach of almost 50 million per market that they're in. So if you're not if you're not on social media, you're likely also being exposed to them through your local news channels. And Amy, how long will y'all keep producing these videos? So we've published five or six to date. The team actually shot about 30. So we're going to continue to push out videos over the course of the next several weeks, every few days, so that people can hear more stories from our front line. And finally, Dr. Desai, as we wrap up, it may only be a two or three minute video, but what do you want folks to know what this has meant for you personally? Personally, it has meant something very real to me, something I've had to learn and adapt myself to, something that has gotten me out of my comfort zone. And I hope the video represents that and reflects the reality that all of us healthcare professionals are facing. As I've said to my team when we acknowledge our stress, you don't know how stressful and intense the situation is until you walk into a room and treating a patient with COVID with the compassion and clinical care and expertise that you're providing. Dr. Duvall Desai, Director of Hospital Medicine at Emory St. Joseph's Hospital. I was also joined by Amy Como, Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Support at Emory Healthcare. Dr. Desai, first of all, thank you for what you and your team have been continuing to do with so many others across the nation. Thank you for doing that. And Amy, thank you all for providing these videos for, for folks. I'm sure they really enjoy it. And thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Our pleasure. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. 
I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.